This is Chapter 17 of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 17 Why Germans Wear Spectacles. A mile or two above Eberbach, we saw a peculiar ruin projecting above the foliage which clothed the peak of a high and very steep hill. This ruin consisted of merely a couple of crumbling masses of masonry which bore a rude resemblance to human faces. They leaned forward and touched foreheads, and had the look of being absorbed in conversation. This ruin had nothing very imposing or picturesque about it, and there was no great deal of it, yet it was called the Spectacular Ruin. LEGEND OF THE SPECTACULAR RUIN The captain of the raft, who was as full of history as he could stick, said that in the Middle Ages a most prodigious fire-breathing dragon used to live in that region, and made more trouble than a tax-collector. He was as long as a railway train, and had the customary impenetrable green scales all over him. His breath bred pestilence and conflagration, and his appetite bred famine. He ate men and cattle impartially, and was exceedingly unpopular. The German emperor of that day made the usual offer. He would grant to the destroyer of the dragon any one solitary thing he might ask for, for he had a surplusage of daughters, and it was customary for dragon-killers to take a daughter for pay. So the most renowned knights came from the four corners of the earth and retired down the dragon's throat one after the other. A panic arose and spread. Heroes grew cautious. The procession ceased. The dragon became more destructive than ever. The people lost all hope of succor, and fled to the mountains for refuge. At last Sir Wissenschaft, a poor and obscure knight, out of a far country, arrived to do battle with the monster. A pitiable object he was, with his armor hanging in rags about him, and his strange-shaped knapsack strapped upon his back. Everybody turned up their noses at him, and some openly jeered him. But he was calm. He simply inquired if the emperor's offer was still in force. The emperor said it was, but charitably advised him to go and hunt hares and not endanger so precious a life as his in an attempt which had brought death to so many of the world's most illustrious heroes. But this tramp only asked, Were any of these heroes men of science? This raised a laugh, of course, for science was despised in those days. But the tramp was not in the least ruffled. He said he might be a little in advance of his age, but no matter, science would come to be honored some time or other. He said he would march against the dragon in the morning. Out of compassion, then, a decent spear was offered him, but he declined, and said, "'Spears were useless to men of science.' They allowed him to sup in the servants' hall, and gave him a bed in the stables. When he started forth in the morning, thousands were gathered to see. The emperor said, "'Do not be rash. Take a spear, and leave off your knapsack.' But the tramp said, "'It is not a knapsack,' and moved straight on. The dragon was waiting and ready. He was breathing forth vast volumes of sulphurous smoke and lurid blasts of flame. The ragged knight stole warily to a good position. Then he unslung his cylindrical knapsack, which was simply the common fire-extinguisher known to modern times, and the first chance he got he turned on his hose and shot the dragon square in the center of his cavernous mouth. Out went the fires in an instant, and the dragon curled up and died. This man had brought brains to his aid. 
he had reared dragons from the egg in his laboratory he had watched over them like a mother and patiently studied them and experimented upon them while they grew thus he had found out that fire was the life principle of a dragon put out the dragon's fires and it could make steam no longer and must die he could not put out a fire with a spear therefore he invented the extinguisher the dragon being dead the emperor fell on the hero's neck and said deliverer name your request at the same time beckoning out behind with his heel for a detachment of his daughters to form an advance but the tramp gave them no observance he simply said my request is that upon me be conferred the monopoly of the manufacture and sale of spectacles in germany the emperor sprang aside and exclaimed this transcends all the impudence i ever heard a modest demand by my halidome why didn't you ask for the imperial revenues at once and be done with it but the monarch had given his word and he kept it to everybody's surprise the unselfish monopolist immediately reduced the price of spectacles to such a degree that a great and crushing burden was removed from the nation the emperor to commemorate this generous act and to testify his appreciation of it issued a decree commanding everybody to buy this benefactor's spectacles and wear them whether they needed them or not so originated the widespread custom of wearing spectacles in germany and as a custom once established in these old lands is imperishable this one remains universal in the empire to this day such is the legend of the monopolist's once stately and sumptuous castle now called the spectacular ruin on the right bank two or three miles below the spectacular ruin we passed by a noble pile of castellated buildings overlooking the water from the crest of a lofty elevation a stretch of two hundred yards of the high front wall was heavily draped with ivy and out of the mass of buildings within rose three picturesque old towers the place was in fine order and was inhabited by a family of princely rank this castle had its legend too but i should not feel justified in repeating it because i doubted the truth of some of its minor details along in this region a multitude of italian laborers were blasting away the frontage of the hills to make room for the new railway they were fifty or a hundred feet above the river as we turned a sharp corner they began to wave signals and shout warnings to us to look out for the explosions it was all very well to warn us but what could we do you can't back a raft upstream you can't hurry it downstream you can't scatter out to one side when you haven't any room to speak of you won't take to the perpendicular cliffs on the other shore when they appear to be blasting there too your resources are limited you see there is simply nothing for it but to watch and pray for some hours we had been making three and a half or four miles an hour and we were still making that we had been dancing right along until those men began to shout then for the next ten minutes it seemed to me that i had never seen a raft go so slowly when the first blast went off we raised our sun umbrellas and waited for the result no harm done none of the stones fell in the water another blast followed and another and another some of the rubbish fell in the water just astern of us we ran that whole battery of nine blasts in a row and it was certainly one of the most exciting and uncomfortable weeks i ever spent either a ship or ashore of course we frequently manned the poles and shoved earnestly for a second or so 
but every time one of those spurts of dust and debris shot aloft every man dropped his pole and looked up to get the bearings of his share of it it was very busy times along there for a while it appeared certain that we must perish but even that was not the bitterest thought no the abjectly unheroic nature of the death that was the sting that and the bizarre wording of the resulting obituary shot with a rock on a raft there would be no poetry written about it none could be written about it well, example not by war's shock or war's shaft shot with a rock on a raft no poet who valued his reputation would touch such a theme as that i should be distinguished as the only distinguished dead who went down to the grave unsonneted in eighteen seventy eight but we escaped and i have never regretted it the last blast was a peculiarly strong one and after the small rubbish was done raining around us and we were just going to shake hands over our deliverance a later and larger stone came down amongst our little group of pedestrians and wrecked an umbrella it did no other harm but we took to the water just the same it seems that the heavy work in the quarries and the new railway gratings is done mainly by italians that was a revelation we have the notion in our country that italians never do heavy work at all but confine themselves to the lighter arts like organ grinding operatic singing and assassination we have blundered that is plain all along the river near every village we saw little station houses for the future railway they were finished and waiting for the rails and business they were as trim and snug and pretty as they could be they were always of brick or stone they were of graceful shape they had vines and flowers about them already and around them the grass was bright and green and showed that it was carefully looked after they were a decoration to the beautiful landscape not an offence wherever one saw a pile of gravel or a pile of broken stone it was always heaped as trimly and exactly as a new grave or a stack of cannon-balls nothing about those stations or along the railroad or the wagon road was allowed to look shabby or be unornamental the keeping a country in such beautiful order as germany exhibits has a wise practical side to it too for it keeps thousands of people in work and bread who would otherwise be idle and mischievous as the night shut down the captain wanted to tie up but i thought maybe we might make hirschhorn so we went on presently the sky became overcast and the captain came aft looking uneasy he cast his eye aloft then shook his head and said it was coming on to blow my party wanted to land at once therefore i wanted to go on the captain said we ought to shorten the sail anyway out of common prudence consequently the larboard watch was ordered to lay in his pole it grew quite dark now and the wind began to rise it wailed through the swaying branches of the trees and swept our decks in fitful gusts things were taking on an ugly look the captain shouted to the steersman on the forward log how's she landing the answer came faint and hoarse from far forward nor'east and by nor'east by east half east sir let her go off a point aye aye sir what water have you got shoal sir two foot large on the stabboard two and a half scant on the labboard let her go off another point aye aye sir forward men all of you lively now stand by to crowd her round the weather corner aye aye sir 
then followed a wild running and trampling and hoarse shouting but the forms of the men were lost in the darkness and the sounds were distorted and confused by the roaring of the wind through the shingle bundles by this time the sea was running inches high and threatening every moment to engulf the frail bark now came the mate hurrying aft and said close to the captain's ear in a low agitated voice prepare for the worst sir we have sprung a leak heavens where right aft the second row of logs nothing but a miracle can save us don't let the men know or there will be a panic and mutiny lay her in shore and stand by to jump with the stern line the moment she touches gentlemen i must look to you to second my endeavors in this hour of peril you have hats go forward and bail for your lives down swept another mighty blast of wind clothed in spray and thick darkness at such a moment as this came from away forward that most appalling of all cries that are ever heard at sea man overboard the captain shouted harp a port never mind the man let him climb aboard or wade ashore another cry came down the wind breakers ahead where away not a log's length off her port forefoot we had groped our slippery way forward and were now bailing with the frenzy of despair when we heard the mate's terrified cry from far aft stop that dashed bailing or we shall be aground but this was immediately followed by the glad shout land aboard the starboard transom saved cried the captain jump ashore and take a turn round a tree and pass the bite aboard the next moment we were all on shore weeping and embracing for joy while the rain poured down in torrents the captain said he had been a mariner for forty years on the neckar and in that time had seen storms to make a man's cheek blanch and his pulses stop but he had never never seen a storm that even approached this one how familiar that sounded for i have been at sea a good deal and have heard that remark from captains with a frequency accordingly we framed in our minds the usual resolution of thanks and admiration and gratitude and took the first opportunity to vote it and put it in writing and present it to the captain with the customary speech we tramped through the darkness and the drenching summer rain full three miles and reached the naturalist tavern in the village of hirschhorn just an hour before midnight almost exhausted from hardship fatigue and terror i can never forget that night the landlord was rich and therefore could afford to be crusty and disobliging he did not at all like being turned out of his warm bed to open his house for us but no matter his household got up and cooked a quick supper for us and we brewed a hot punch for ourselves to keep off consumption after supper and punch we had an hour's soothing smoke while we fought the naval battle over again and voted the resolutions then we retired to exceedingly neat and pretty chambers upstairs that had clean comfortable beds in them with heirloom pillowcases most elaborately and tastefully embroidered by hand such rooms and beds and embroidered linen are as frequent in german village inns as they are rare in ours our villages are superior to german villages in more merits excellences conveniences and privileges than i can enumerate but the hotels do not belong in the list the naturalist tavern was not a meaningless name for all the halls and all the rooms were lined with large glass cases which were filled with all sorts of birds and animals glass-eyed ably stuffed and set up in the most natural eloquent and dramatic attitudes the moment we were abed the rain cleared away and the moon came out i dozed off to sleep while contemplating a great white 
stuffed owl which was looking intently down on me from a high perch with the air of a person who thought he had met me before but could not make out for certain but young z did not get off so easily he said that as he was sinking deliciously to sleep the moon lifted away the shadows and developed a huge cat on a bracket dead and stuffed but crouching with every muscle tense for a spring and with its glittering glass eyes aimed straight at him it made z uncomfortable he tried closing his own eyes but that did not answer for a natural instinct kept making him open them again to see if the cat was still getting ready to launch at him which she always was he tried turning his back but that was a failure he knew the sinister eyes were on him still so at last he had to get up after an hour or two of worry and experiment and set the cat out in the hall so he won that time end of chapter 17